0: My hopes, indeed, sometimes fail, but not oftener than the forebodings of the gloomy. There are, I acknowledge, even in the happiest life, some terrible convulsions, heavy set-offs against the opposite page of the account. I've often wondered for what good end the sensations of grief could be intended. He chose his words, as always, with care. He spoke not only of his sensations of grief, that sensitivity to the tears and things that formed so unexpected a part of his mental equipment, but also of his forebodings of the gloomy, the burden of presentiment that lay heavily upon him, an apprehension of possible futures that enabled him to become a great man, but that also made him a nervous and often an indecisive one. To bring order to this interior confusion, Jefferson carefully devised rules of conduct. Indolence was to be avoided at all costs. When the mind was indolent, Jefferson told his daughter, Martha, or Patsy, given up to snaggletooth laziness, one's being becomes a burden, and every object about us loathsome. Idleness, Jefferson warned, begets ennui, and ennui, the hypochondria. The word hypochondria was not limited in the 18th century to the morbid apprehension of imaginary diseases. The term was more often used to indicate habitual melancholy, thought in those days to be caused by a defect in the nervous system or by the epigastric juices of the abdomen those hypochondrial regions of the body where the liver, the spleen, and the gallbladder are found. Hypochondria led to hysteria. No laborious person, Jefferson said, was ever yet hysterical. Exercise was especially important in the struggle to preserve sanity. Not less than two hours a day should be devoted to it, Jefferson believed. Of all the exercises, he maintained, walking is best. I have known some great walkers, he said, and had particular accounts of many more. And I never knew or heard of one who was not healthy and long-lived. A brisk walk, according to Jefferson, shakes off sleep and produces other good effects in the animal economy. The object of walking, he said, is to relax the mind... You should not permit yourself even to think when you walk, he advised. Never think of taking a book with you. Labor, discipline, a scrupulous avoidance of the dark places of the mind, these were, for Jefferson, the principles of a healthy life. Precepts by which a man might hope to be guided to a serene old age. The consequences of not following so prudent a course were likely to be grave, a descent into the abysses of ennui and hypochondria, perhaps even into madness. For Jefferson, even so simple a thing as staying up late with a book was a bad idea, a transgression of salutary limits. The night has often been the nursery of genius, but Jefferson had an almost superstitious abhorrence of its power. Rise at a fixed and early hour, he advised, and go to bed at a fixed and early hour also. Sitting up late at night is injurious to the health, he maintained, and not useful to the mind. The night was a dangerous time, a time when the mind's discipline was relaxed and dreams came. That is why, Jefferson explained, he never went to bed without an hour or half-hour's previous reading of something moral whereon to ruminate in the intervals of sleep. Even the sleeping mind had to be coaxed into submitting to a Jeffersonian discipline. Jefferson walked fast. His unremitting labors kept him exceedingly busy. He read moral literature before bedtime, but still the shadows came. He was not like his father a work of natural simplicity, a stout man of action, a vestige, it seemed, of a more vigorous epoch in human development, a throwback to the Bronze Age. In the constitution of the sun's mind, there were complications, there were refinements of spirit, there were depths. In order to invent America, he had first to invent himself. He was called to be an architect of a liberating Whig revolution. But it is a paradox of the Whig system that it cannot be built without a resort to the very materials it is supposed to render obsolete. Jefferson dedicated his life to freeing men, not only from the forms of oppressive authority, but also from the varieties of mystic craft. For according to the Whig... It is precisely this mystic craft that enables the tyrant to perpetuate his primacy. I have, Jefferson said, sworn upon the altar of God, eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. Superstitious faith, the awe of things that stand above, was, Jefferson believed, the most potent form of mental tyranny he stood he said for common sense and he was skeptical of any claim that could not be verified by it but no more than other people could jefferson live without those uncommon trumpets mystic and nonsensical that bid a man rise from his moperies and act with an heroic creativity jefferson was in his philosophy a materialist, and he was devoted to the rational interpretation of empirical facts. But his theories were unequal to his perceptions, and his yearnings outstripped his philosophy. It is because he understood the inadequacy of his theories before the great mysteries of existence that he resorted, on occasion, to a language stained in mysticism and truer to the strangeness. It is one of the principal oddnesses of his life. If he was to be a model Whig, he could not be wholly a Whig. To build the modern Whig world he dreamed of building, he would have to do more than act commonsensically in the universe his heroes, Bacon, Newton, and the other grandpas of the Enlightenment, had painted for him. To be a complete Whig... Jefferson would have to be at least partly a Tory. He might pace the pillared spaces of his villa, entranced by the reasonableness of Locke's intelligence, or Voltaire's wit, or Gibbon's history. He might adorn his house with the rational luxuries of an eighteenth-century taste. But if he were to succeed in rousing himself from his lassitudes and show himself capable of action, he would have to descend to the Tory crypts and assemble in those strange vaults, in the light of those dim candles, a philosophy that did more than reason and common sense could to facilitate the expedition of the will. This book is a portrait of Jefferson descending. In those secret laboratories we find him melting down strangely unenlightened creeds, orthodoxies, patterns of thought and belief. We find him mixing the molten materials together and anxiously pouring the glowing liquid into the cast of a livable life. Ever since Gary Wills published in 1978 his book, Inventing America, it has ceased to be possible to think of Jefferson as simply a good whig dedicated to an unbinding of the chains, a liberation of the spheres. Wills showed that Jefferson's Whig ideas were colored by a form of sentimental faith, highly fashionable in the 18th century. These sentimental canons were a secular edition, revised and corrected for the 18th century press, of an older European mysticism. This was the medieval language of love, and the revivified love song appealed to lapsed Christians who, if the truth were confessed, found themselves bored by the wit and enlightenment of Voltaire. Sentimentality touched them in the depths of their blood, in the agony of their stony places, in a way Voltaire never could. It endowed with coherence a universe tottering on the edge of anarchy. But sentimentality was not the only mystic fabric Jefferson took up, fondled, intellectually caressed. The modern man's life is, Jefferson said, a continual pursuit of happiness, a perpetual chase, amid the plenitude of possibility, the infinity of choice, the superabundance of creeds and destinies on sale in the Whig markets. The modern man must find his way, through trial and error, to a faith, or at least to an éclaircissement, Jefferson did, although he was always a little mysterious about its character. I am of a sect by myself, as far as I know, he told Ezra Stiles in the decade before he died. Just now we are between Jeffersons. Older editions of the man have been put aside. No new volume has yet been issued to take its place. All honor to Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln said to the man who, in the concrete pressure of a struggle for national independence by a single people, had the coolness, forecast, and capacity to introduce into a merely revolutionary document an abstract truth applicable to all men and all times, and so to embalm it there, that today and in all coming days it shall be a rebuke and a stumbling block to the very harbingers of reappearing tyranny and oppression. Lincoln believed Jefferson to be the greatest teacher of liberty in the American tradition. But by the 1930s, Lincoln's Jefferson had given way to another Jefferson, that of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Inspired by Claude Bowers' pungently partisan Jefferson and Hamilton, 1925, FDR invoked the third president as a fellow struggler against the economic royalists who, in the tradition of Hamilton, had erected the dynasties which the New Deal was intended to destroy. I have a breathless feeling as I lay down this book, Roosevelt wrote in a review of Jefferson and Hamilton in the Evening World. It was the only book Roosevelt ever reviewed for publication. Hamiltons we have today, the future president said. Is it Jefferson on the horizon? After he won the White House, FDR laid the cornerstone for the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, and he watched with approval as John Russell Pope's dish of neoclassical vanilla ice cream rose on the banks of the Potomac. Each April, on the anniversary of his hero's birth, the President dispatched a courtier to Monticello to lay a wreath at Jefferson's tomb. Roosevelt's Jefferson, a New Deal tribune of the plebs, was succeeded by the Jefferson of the post war Imperial Republic, the idol of the bright, confident men who made the American century. Unsurprisingly, This Jefferson possessed many of the virtues which the makers of the American century attributed to themselves. They discovered in The Master of Monticello a cool, rational, somewhat technocratic genius. A man who might, without incongruity, grace a cover of Time magazine. This was the Jefferson John F. Kennedy invited the Nobel laureate to feast upon at a famous dinner in 1962. The Nobels, Kennedy said, represented the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge, that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Kennedy Jefferson was a super-talented new frontiersman, a shade more versatile than McGeorge Bundy, a more masterly version of Robert McNamara. It is this Jefferson, the forerunner of the best and the brightest, who is enshrined in the greatest work of Jeffersonian hagiography which the last century produced, Dumas Malone's Jefferson and His Time. But the placidly rational Jefferson of Malone